This is Media Business Matters, the podcast that explores why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. Now, we've been very TV heavy for the past couple episodes. I mean, it's probably what happens when you put two people who really know and talk about TV on a podcast about media. But this week, we thought we'd change it up a bit and talk about the music business and the recording industry. There's been a lot in the news lately. Not a lot resolving anything, but a lot going on. There have been a number of stories about the music streaming service title. It's under new management. There have been some lawsuits over royalties. Possibly it's up for sale. Pandora, as well, another streaming service, may or may not be up for sale. And there's been all sorts of news around some different experiments that various artists have followed in releasing their music or making it available or unavailable. The whole story of Kanye West's latest release is is too long to even recount here. Yeah, wasn't it at one point he was on title, then he was selling it himself, then he was exclusively on title, and then he was $53 million in debt, and... The music business is a bit of a mess. Yeah. Well, it, it, it takes a lot to make sense of it, but we're going to try to talk about some of the intricacies using a report from Liam Bullock full of interesting and surprising pieces of information. You can find a link to the report titled Less Money, Mo Music, and Lots of Problems, a look at the music biz at the Media Business Matters site at amandalots.com. So, Amanda, what are some of these intricacies that we need to keep in mind? Well, first, we have to pull apart three different parts of the recording industry. The trends in each are a little bit different, though they are certainly all interrelated. So to some degree, trying to pull them apart is is a false activity, as, as I think we'll quickly see. One set of issues surround what has happened with music sales, the actual buying of music over the last 20 years. The second is what has happened with concerts and live performances. And lastly, the business of streaming services, which in a way, follow on the pre-digital business of radio, which continues to be solid. But the streaming businesses seem to have different implications for music purchase than radio did. Okay, you just put a lot on the table there. So where are we going to begin? Well, let's start with sales. All of the data that I'm going to cite as I talk uh, comes from Bullock's report, and he has some great charts. And, And I'm not trying to drown you in numbers, but there are some really interesting nuggets here. What would you guess has happened to music sales? Well, I think the uh, obvious, the big obvious elephant in the room is that there's been some sort of decline, right? Yes. So sales of music, and these numbers are adjusted for inflation, have plummeted by over 70% uh, to down to $14 billion since 1999. Consumers have never spent less on recorded music since comprehensive data began being collected in 1973. Oh, boy. <laughs> That does not sound good for the industry. Yes, incredibly bad. Um, But part of this story is about how we want our music and how technology has enabled us to access it in different ways and whether or not uh, there's a business that can, can respond and adjust with the different ways in which people want to access music. So in a pre-digital distribution era, you could own your music. You, you could buy it on a physical form, like an album or a cassette, and then a CD, our first digital form, but still a physical form. Or you could hope to have a radio station in your market that played music that you like. Alex, have you ever been a radio listener? Well, I was much more so when I was younger than I am today. When I was younger, you know, my parents would put on the radio in the car, I'd put on the radio in the house, I think I had an alarm clock that woke up to the radio. 
But now that I've grown older and, you know, I have my phone with me, my computer, and everything like that, I've really transitioned to using online music only. I mean, I bounced around from, I've used a little bit of Pandora, I used to be a big Spotify guy, even paying for premium for a little bit, but now um, I tend to like using my iTunes library, the mix of music I own, because I actually do buy music sometimes. It's rare. Um, but I did actually buy that last Adele album on CD, which we talked about um, As did a I. couple weeks ago. But I, I like Apple Music because of the iTunes integration, and that's why I use it. But I, So I might not be the right person to represent stats with show that radio isn't really dying, right? Well, I ask you because when I talk to my classes about radio, they do tend to look at me blankly, and it's been that way for a while. So my sense has been that the market, at least the young market, is moving away from radio. But you're right. Uh, radio does seem to be hanging in there, at least at this point. And, you know, as a 40-something, you know, radio is actually part of my life. It's not necessarily something I seek out, uh, but it, it, it's it's a convenience medium. It's, it's there in the car. It's there while I make dinner. But going back to these numbers, according to Bullock's data, broadcast and owned music still accounts for 42 minutes of every hour of listening that we do. So in that sense, your owned music would count in there in the same way that radio does. So that's still the great majority of the hour of listening. And so that was a surprising number to me. Radio as an industry still generates $15 billion a year, which is two times that of recorded music. And so by starting the conversation this way, what I'm trying to build is, is a point about how we access media and effect and what is available for us to use to access media is likely to affect our ownership behavior. How so? So Bullock makes the case that we've reached an end of the age of ownership. And it's important to think of ownership as a previous norm that was created by previous conditions. And so again, when I'm talking about ownership, I'm talking about the idea that we buy music and then, you know, kind of own and control it. And Whether it's the physical buying of the CD or you're buying, say, a song or an album on iTunes or Amazon Music or Google Play or the many digital places where you can buy music nowadays. Right. And so it used to be that the only way that you could buy it was a physical form. And so one of the things, one of the many things that has happened in the last couple decades is that now you can own music not in a digital form. But then this other third thing that has happened is that you can now demand access or can get access without owning music in either physical or non-physical form. And it's that whole matrix of issues that has really posed a lot of challenges to artists, to the record labels, and, and figuring out what the digital era of this business looks like. So? So many things happened. If we're talking about the ownership of, of music and why our behaviors are changing. And, and more or less, as soon as music files circulated on the web, um, and so we're talking really the late 1990s is, is when all this, this, these moments of change began. So the first thing that happened is that the track market emerged, uh, which was tough on the recording industry because CDs had been very much overpriced by that, the recording industry and thus very lucrative. Although, isn't, wasn't there a point up until maybe a handful of years ago where you could actually buy a single on a CD? I still remember going to the music store and seeing the, these one or two track out or one or two track CDs. Yes, and I think that was even a, a, this, 
a small business for CD. It was, I think, a bigger business in both tapes and, and in albums. But it, it was it was a negligible part of the industry. And, and I think there were a lot of things sort of set up to discourage consumers from really wanting to buy in that format relative to the comparison of the track. And I think part of that had to do with pricing and convenience. Again, if you think back, those days of physical media, like you put it in your tape player and you play a single through and then what, rewind, yeah. So there were all these affordances that came with the the different technologies and, and their physical forms that made them challenging you to use. You didn't actually, ha you didn't have to rewind to repeat. You just turn on repeat and it plays the same song over and over again. Exactly, or you can conveniently put it into a mix of music. All right, so coming back to this, first there were tracks, and to a degree people were buying them, but once streaming services emerged, even track ownership also starts to take a hit. And so that's, this is where I think his argument about the end of an age of ownership comes from, that people are, are moving away from buying media as streaming services. And, and we're going to talk about the recording industry the whole time, but I think in the back of our heads, we can also think about how this relates to what is going on in video industries and in print industries. So whether or not we buy media in the recording or any other industry depends upon whether it is otherwise readily available. So again, the comparison here, think about what happened to DVD ownership and once Netflix appeared. And if you're playing the Media Business Matters drinking game, now is where you drink uh, because of the Netflix drop. But it really, I mean, there was a huge decline in this home video market in the past 10 or so years. I mean, it used to be a surefire way to bring back some money for the studios when they had a movie that wasn't quite making its budget back in theaters. But now, it, especially for maybe movies with... Um, middle budgets and middle box office that might not, you know, that aren't going to set the world on fire. But now it's really in a state of freefall. So I think there's a good comparison there. Well, and I think it's important to remember that the DVD business, especially the the, the sale of DVDs, that, that was a huge component of the, the film industry, not even just for those middling budget movies. There was this moment, and I think we're already you know, at least for, for some younger listeners almost past it, but it was this normal thing to buy a whole lot of DVDs. And, you know, I think that for a long time, or again, like three years in media business, um, the studios were convinced that they could hold on to that revenue in some ways. But again, Well, there was the advent of Blu-ray and the, the push into higher definition versions of the home video to try to make it more enticing for these... Or to make you buy your DVD collection all over again and pay a little bit more because it's this better technology. But it's the, 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 there is a report that just came out in the last couple of weeks that, that traces and really ties pretty directly how the emergence of Netflix um, correlates quite nicely with the decline of the DVD sale business. And, and again, I think we have to think about why is that? What keeps people from owning? What keeps people from feeling like they need to go out and buy their favorite DVD? Well, you don't feel you need to do that if you have a service on which it's likely to be available or you know that it you could you know if even if it's you're a Netflix subscriber and it's not on Netflix you know, if you have that moment and you really want to watch that movie chances are you could get it on an Amazon you or can some rent other it. way you i mean digital rentals are now popping up video on demand is huge now so it comes back to to availability so a couple other surprising nuggets that i found in Bullock's report 
What percent of music sales would you guess CD sales still represent? You know what? I'm going to throw out the number 10% and hope I'm right. Well, it's actually better than that. Well, depending on how you, what, what better is. But actually, it's 30%. And here's another interesting one. What retailer would you guess sells 25% of them? The big guys? Just one. Okay. Amazon? No, Walmart. Whoa, Walmart, really? So in terms of physical music sales, this is what I take there. There is more physical music sales still in existence than I would have guessed, and it's not happening necessarily at the retailer that I would have guessed. Yeah, I would not I would not have said thought Walmart for like three or four or five retailers before I got there. Well, I think the important part about that is, is the shelf space issue. And so uh, Walmart, while they do have an online presence, is, is predominantly a bricks-and-mortar store, uh, it's a bricks and mortar store that has a whole lot of stuff in it, and so and a whole lot of space to put music. Well, but probably not as wide an array of music as we would find back when we had bricks and mortar music no, stores. It's probably figure your top hits and then maybe some top classics or something Very much. like that. So that's so that's a, a a bit on music sales. Now let's move into another part of the industry: concerts. Okay, so first we have to address what the old norms were, because not everyone uh, is familiar with the, the dynamics of, of where the money comes from if you're a musician or an artist. It used to be that touring and concert revenues were the only substantive revenue that a lot of performing artists ever saw. And we're talking mostly about performers here. Writers and producers do get paid a bit differently. Certainly, the top talent also did make some money from music sales, but mostly those album sales, the music sales revenue that we've been talking about, most of that revenue has, both in the past and still today, stays with the label. So Bullock notes that since 2000, artists have spent significantly more time touring and ticket prices have risen close to 35% per ticket, and again, adjusted for inflation. So what that means is that the U.S. concert industry has tripled since 1999, which is when recorded sales peak. So if we talk about when the cliff is for recorded music sales, it's 1999, and it's exactly that moment that concert sales really begin to take off. But here's the interesting nugget. 83% of the growth has gone to non-top 100 artists. I find that fascinating. It's, it's interesting because I look at a number like that and I wonder where it comes from. And I wonder if it's because something along the lines of you have these smaller artists who are, are now going on smaller tours. And if artists are spending more time out there, you know, they're going to play. The top 100 artists, you know, will have a big tour to, per, or to promote their album. But maybe these smaller artists will spend a lot more time just out on the road playing concerts. Right, and I think it really points to, again, I think I'm ever making things more complicated. So I'm going to make us talk about different parts of the recorded music industry. Um, and then on top of that, the need to think about different kinds of performers. And, and I think in a lot of ways, Bullock's report was responding to these very generalized conversations that, that have been going on in different sectors of the, the web. They've been going on kind of everywhere, everywhere that music is talked about. Right. And I think there's a tendency to kind of talk about what it means to be an artist and, and as though the experience for all of them is the same. And I think one thing that comes out of, of the this piece of data is that there, there are really different things going on if you are a, a top artist as opposed to if, if you're not in one of those top 100 artists. So what the takeaway here is in terms of the, the concert business is that the most popular acts have seen their primary income stream, which is recorded music sales, collapse by more than 70% since 2000, 
while concert revenue for that top 100 group has only increased by 32%. I find that to be really interesting. I mean, I'm a a Broadway guy myself, uh, grew up in the New York area, gone to see a lot of theater, and I find it interesting how ticket, we talked about ticket prices for concerts going up, ticket prices for Broadway have gone up substantially. I think we're talking somewhere in the range of at least 30 to 50% for a lot of shows over the past 10 years. And it's because they can charge, because people will pay. People will pay for Hamilton tickets now. Oh, sir. Much more than they, people will pay for the Book of Mormon. People will, are willing to pay the money, so the producers just keep increasing the prices and increasing the prices. Well, and that's an interesting case because you have theater capacity, right? And so you do have this constraint in a way that in much of the rest of the media industry, you don't have a, that, that kind of constraint. I guess concerts venues also have that, that size limitation. It's just a much, much a bigger size for a concert venue than, say, a Broadway theater. So at the end of the podcast, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about some experiments that we're seeing with some of the top artists and maybe why those are happening. And so I think one of the reasons for why are we seeing some of the ex- some of the experimentation and business model that we're seeing probably comes back to this problem of a decline in the income stream from recorded music sales and without the kind of growth in concert revenue. But the other side of that, that figure is that smaller acts, and, and those were acts that never really generated significant revenue from their music sales, that they're making considerably more from concerts. And so my question, though, with the analysis, the, the thing that's not clear from it is whether or not and to what extent it takes into account the emergence of, of what are largely being called 360-degree deals uh, that are now allowing labels to actually access some of that touring revenue that used to only go now, to the artists. Can you tell us a little bit more about these 360-degree deals? Um, I yeah. know we've gone over them in some classes, but... <laughs> Our, our listeners might not be uh, completely familiar. So I think these are, they recognize the nature of the modern celebrity, I think is probably the best way to understand them. And, and part of it is coming from the way uh, agents are signed and sort of the, the bit of an artist's or a celebrity's life that the agent has access to. So in the past where artists had to share a certain amount of their their income with their labels that was tied just to the the actual recorded goods in the past and in order to help the record labels that with the argument that they are struggling or at least they're certainly not making the money that they used to because of the decline in recorded music sales uh, that the labels also want access to some of the revenue that the artists make on their tours as well right Now, let's move into kind of the last big area we're going to talk about today, streaming services, probably the biggest disruptor of music in the past five years. Yes, and this is where we have to go even deeper into the weeds. Part of what Bullock is responding to with the report here, I think, is publicity around the utterly negligible amount of money that artists are making from streaming services. Right. I mean, in the past year, Taylor Swift has come out with a couple of really big stories that have affected, or based on the money that artists make from streaming, like Taylor Swift pulling her music off Spotify because they didn't pay her enough, and uh, a huge battle she had with Apple this past summer where Apple wasn't going to pay their artists during what was a three-month free trial period during the launch of Apple Music. And Taylor Swift said, no, I'm not putting my music on there if I and the other artists are not getting paid 
And Apple eventually relented and said, all right, fine, we'll pay you. But the issue is much more complex than these basic stories suggest, right? Yes. To even start to explain this, there are a couple distinctions among the services that are probably not at all obvious to anyone who even uses them. So they are categorized as sort of different kinds of listening services, and they have different business models. So Spotify depends on subscriptions, and, and I know there's a free version. I'll get that to that in a minute. But Spotify pays rights holders a royalty based on revenue. And that tends to be, it's around 70% of the revenue that it makes. It divides by... This is, this is revenue coming from subscribers and And ads. advertisers, right. So all of whatever money Spotify gets in, 70% of that it divides to the artist based on the percentage of overall monthly streams that are made. That sounds like a very complex uh, equation that they would try to make me solve in a differential equations class. Well, there you go. There's the applicability of your math skills. The, the real world needs them. And so Spotify is classified as a, quote, interactive on-demand streaming service. Um, and, and so to some degree, we might think about Spotify substituting more for ownership. Um, and as a result, it forms individuals and individual and voluntary deals with the labels about what percentage of income uh, that labels get. So when we say that 70%, that's money that Spotify gives back to the labels, and then what the labels do with it is, is something else entirely that so Spotify... So will labels have separate contracts with their artists then in order to divvy up Spotify money? Or is this a deal with Spotify? Or does Spotify identify different artists? I am not sure about that. But again, remember, it comes back to this money being extremely negligible. Um, and, and that's like we're, we're talking we're talking we're not even talking pennies we're no. talking halves or quarters even maybe of tenths of pennies sometimes hundreds of pennies for a stream and and I think you know going back to the some of the concerns that um, Taylor Swift raised and, and this has been an, an issue that's been of concern in the film industry as well it's this question of, of how pricing might lead consumers of media to sort of change the, the value that they afford to the music good or, let's say, the video good. Say um, the 3D ticket price or the IMAX ticket price here. Right. And so sort of the idea that I think the concern is or listeners would come to think that listening to a song was only worth one-tenth of one penny. Uh, and what are the implications of that? But... Coming back to streaming business, ownership business, two different things. All right, just, just to dig a little deeper here. In contrast, Pandora, which many might consider a competitor with Spotify, Pandora is classified as a non-interactive on-demand streaming service. Meaning you don't get to pick the songs you listen to, you pick a station, and the quote-unquote music genome project selects it for you. Right, and so the, for that kind of service, the content payments are fixed by regulators and by courts, and, and it's done through what's called a compulsory license, um, so that the royalties are not being paid on particular songs or to particular artists. And just to give you a comparison, whereas Spotify is paying 70% of its revenue back to the labels and the artists, the content costs at Pandora were only 48% of revenue in 2014. That's really interesting. And again, and that's sort of structured by law. And there's been a lot of discussion about the need to revisit the way that different music services are legally categorized. Um, and it does make Pandora a little bit more like radio, which also... Um, depends on ads, and, and there again, radio pays a blanket fee for rights. 
I actually didn't know that about the radio. I probably should have, but... So these differences affect the payments that go back to the labels for artists, and they drive different business strategies. Bullock does this analysis that shows how unpaying Spotify subscribers, those who are the free ones, represent 76% of the active user base, but they contribute just 9% of revenue. And that's because advertising for an ad on Spotify is negligible or is a very, very small amount of money to Spotify who has to pay billions and billions of dollars out in royalties. So he figures that a paid user is 30 times more valuable than someone who's just using the service for free and argues that it would be in Spotify's interest to make it less friendly to free users and that if Spotify could convert just 3% of those free users to being paid users, that that would be worth losing the other 97%. And yet, when I think about it kind of just on my own and what I know about Spotify, I don't know many paid users of Spotify. I mean, I, I would look at that and I would say, is it really worth, you know, the, the value of what Spotify has is so much. And I, you look at something like Tidal, which doesn't have that free tier, and has been going through so much turmoil because of how poorly they're doing. I don't know if I'd necessarily agree with that characterization. Well, then he raises the, the issue of the different ways in which we could value or we could evaluate success. So Spotify is still pre-IPO. They're still in a startup phase. They've, they've had a lot of investment. And so the metric, though, that Spotify is focusing on is monthly active users, and that as at least is being perceived as an important pre-IPO metric. So people are going to invest more heavily if they think this is a, a service used by more people. Obviously, more people are going to use it if it's free than if it's not. But Bullock's argument is that the free streaming erodes the sense of the value of media and that Spotify would be better off with a free monthly trial only so that people could try out the service but not have them perpetually on as, as uh, ongoing free users. So something like what Netflix does for its streaming service or say what Apple Music does. Exactly. All right. So to come out of the weeds, hopefully a bit here. What Bullock illustrates is that the real problem for artists in this, this era is that streaming services, as, as a category of media, so in general, it's not that they are specifically you know, designing themselves to have any kind of exploitative practices, but that streaming services are replacing ownership of music. On the one hand, these companies aren't radically different than radio, which doesn't really pay a royalty to performers, but does pay to writers and publishers, because the airplay traditionally was seen as a promotional tool for album purchase or concert attendance. But we're in this brave new world now where you don't need to own your music, and it is so readily available to be streamed, but there isn't really an economic relationship available yet where streaming can pay for the creation of music on any kind of, of, of scale that, that could support the, the industry as it has existed. And notably, it, it's also probably the case that there may be too many streaming service competitors in the field. Um, none of the streaming services are really doing all that well, as the news that we started with, the number of them that potentially are up for sale, Pandora and, and Tidal. And as, as Bullock notes, you know, the other side of that statistic about 42 minutes of every listening hour being recorded music or owned music or radio, 
that means that 16% or 10 minutes of every hour of listening is Pandora, YouTube, and Spotify. YouTube isn't even really technically a music service. And so I think it's also important to keep in mind that these streaming services aren't yet uh, mass products. And I think there's a bit of discussion about whether they ever will be. So what's the answer to kind of all the questions we're raising in this part? I don't know. Uh, That was a lot of time just coming to understand what the problem is. Bullock puts it in economic terms, arguing that the production norms of a pre-digital era enabled the labels to constrain supply, both of artists and of music, uh, because they were the only entities that had the scale to produce, distribute, and, and market music. And streaming services as they exist now end that scarcity. And, and sort of this, is, this has been the foundation of economic relationships, supply and demand. And, and once that, that scarcity goes away, um, the need for new economic models in, in their place. You know, it's, Spotify has 30 million tracks and that you can listen to anywhere, anytime. And the average Spotify user listens to 1,300 tracks per month. And so if you think about, if, if you're an average user and you listen to 1,300 tracks per month, you know, what should you be paying? How could that possibly be enough money to support an artist unless these services just have incredible, incredible scale? I mean, there, there was an artist, um, I, was li- I listened, to the pod- or listened to the podcast TLDR, and he talked about an artist at one point who would put out these little, like, little tiny songs, kind of about nothing, on Spotify. And he would make his money, he would make a good amount of money off Spotify, but he would make it off of streams on something like tens of thousands of songs that he's put out there. But I, I just found that to be an interesting tidbit when thinking, you know, how do these artists make money off of such a negligible thing? Do you think that's what's leading to some of these experiments with exclusivity? Like Rihanna on title, Kanye putting the life of Pablo on title only to get out of his $53 million in debt. Sorry, I, I, making fun of Kanye is too easy. Or a company like Apple putting uh, the new U2 album in people's iTunes libraries, just giving it away to them. I mean, do these suggest that something might happen or along the, these lines to help save or to help bring money to these artists? Uh, perhaps. You know, I think, again, we have to pull apart all these different parts of the business. You know, I think exclusivity uh, is about the streaming services trying to gain some kind of traction against the others. Uh, and, but this this sponsorship, you know, that's really the emergence of, of a different business model. It's not an entirely foreign one. Um, in, in other countries, it is fairly common that the music is effectively given away and artists are able to make their living and primarily through live appearances. Um, and so that's a possibility. I, but again, I, I will note that the list of talent that you just named is, is uh, pretty much at the high end of things. And so right. at the same time, you know, if we see something that might work for well-known artists, we have to also think about what kind of business model allows an artist to start out and, and get to that point. It might be different for, say, an artist that's just breaking through. They might not be able to make that exclusivity deal with the streaming service. Well... Is that kind of what you're getting at there? Yeah. yeah. No, 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 yeah. Right. And so I think the other, in, in the same way that we have to look at an entity like YouTube and the way in which it seems to have created a new space for talent to 
perhaps come to the attention of the conventional industry, but it doesn't yet seem to be uh, much of an alternative to the mainstream industry, except for the rare, rare, rare few, which is not to say they're not out there. Uh, so I think if we look across media industries, we may be on the verge of, of a massive reconfiguration of what media we pay for, what media are ad-supported. What and, media is subscriber-supported. Right, and, and what media we own if we continue to own media at all because of the different affordances that digital distribution of media allow. And yet, until we get to a point where everything is available digitally, I don't know if we'll ever be completely rid of ownership. Right, well, not even just available uh, digitally, but you know how things are available matters, and, yeah. and and then we think we do at some point come back to these questions of of exclusivity and you know, having different services, and whether or not you then you know, sort of commit to some services and not others, and what do you do if you have artists that are outside your service? And so these are these are definitely coming dilemmas for uh, these industries. They they absolutely are. All right, so that was uh, that was something different, um, dependent very much on the keen analysis of Liam Bullock and the data he provided <laughs> us. Um, but I, I feel like I can at least walk away having a sense of what the problem is and what the challenges are in a, in a way that I hadn't quite uh, fully appreciated them before. Absolutely. Now we're going to move into our closing segment. What are we watching this week? Amanda, what are you watching this week? <laughs> well, I've been watching Outsiders, which I've been calling Sons of Justified. Uh, Outsiders is a story about um, a group of people who live on a hill in Appalachia. Um, and so that's why I'm calling it Sons of Gen Justified. And I'm watching primarily because Opie was in it. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's not on my favorites list yet. It's, it's a fascinating show at this point because of the way in which it, it pushes, I think, the, the anti-hero um, villains are central, I guess, in a way um, that they aren't in other shows. And, and it, it's, the performances are, are, are really great. It, it's David Morse in, in rare form, for sure. Um, so I, 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 I've, I find it curious. I'll keep watching, um, but uh, the the form of television never ceases to amaze me. How about you, Alex? What are you watching? Well, I am finding myself to be um, in such a good mood every time I watch an episode of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. I think that he has just been on fire since he debuted in his third season a month ago. Um, I mean, his segment on Donald Trump, I mean... We, Say what you will about Donald Trump. Don John Oliver just sears him. He, his jokes are sharp. They make a point. And I find it interesting because John Oliver has been so resistant to say that his show has any kind of value as news or journalism. I was just reading an interview with him in The New Yorker where he basically said, we're comedy, damn it. We're comedy, comedy, comedy. Well, he was trained by Jon Stewart, who likewise uh, had a lot to say, but was always cognizant of distinguishing himself as a comedian as opposed to a journalist. And yet some of the deep dives he does into certain issues, like certain types of districts in, in, in a recent episode. I mean, this is... This show is sharp. It's funny. And you know what? It makes me a more well-informed person because I watched it. Sorry, John Oliver. Have you seen Full Frontal with Samantha Bee yet? I have. I've seen a few episodes of it. I think she's great. She's absolutely hysterical. Now, I, I think the thing that I, I like about both shows, uh, it was sort of the thing that had 
driven me away uh, from The Daily Show by, by its end. And I really think the weekly format just works so much better in terms of it, it makes for a much tighter show. Um, and I think that when you're in the daily format, there, there was just stuff that got in there. I think part of it comes down to the fact that I only have so much viewing time. Uh, so I really appreciate the uh, how there's, there's never any moment wasted, I don't think, in a John Oliver uh, half hour. Or in a Samantha Bee half hour for the few she's done. Very true. All right. Now, thank you all for listening to what is now our fifth episode. You can find more episodes of Media Business Matters or links to our iTunes feed where you can subscribe, rate, or review us. Please, if you like us, rate or review us. It helps us get discovered. And I'll note that I'll put a link to the Bullock article on the website as well for those who want to dive even deeper into the numbers I offered. Right, and you can find all that at amandalots.com. You can follow Amanda on Twitter at... Dr. TV Lots. And you can follow me at at Alex Intner. That's Alex I-N-T-N-E-R. And if there's a question that you have that we haven't answered yet, feel free to write it in to drtvlots at gmail.com or leave us a message on our Twitter feed. And we'll be happy to answer those questions in later episodes. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back in two weeks.